Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Friday, July 22nd, 2022. So I just want to thank everybody for helping us finish our fundraiser. We've reached our goal, and we really appreciate all the support. We would not be able to do anything without our readers uh, pitching in and, and donating and giving what they can. So thank you for that. That's what brings you all this news coverage and this podcast. It wouldn't be possible without uh, you guys chipping in. So thank you. And I'll just start at the top here. And so this is the last episode of the week for Friday. And I just want to say I'm pretty excited about how things have started. seems like a lot of people like it. So the next episode will come out Monday morning or Sunday night at midnight for Monday morning. So I'll catch you up on all the weekend news. Uh, So the first story for today is um, Nancy Pelosi told Anthony Blinken to designate Russia as a state sponsor of terror or else Congress will. So this is according to a report from Politico that cited two sources familiar with the call. They said Blinken and Pelosi spoke earlier this week as the secretary of state. Blinken has the authority to designate a country as a state sponsor of terror and Congress could could also do it by passing legislation. So the designation is meant to expand sanctions on the targeted nation. Uh, Currently, it's only uh, Cuba, Iran, North Korea, and Syria that are designated by the U.S. as state sponsors of terror. So what do those countries have in common? They're all heavily sanctioned by the U.S., which pretty much it amounts to an economic embargo or blockade. And that's what this really symbolizes, because if you look at Russia now, They've already been hit with a bunch of U.S. sanctions. So the designation, which is meant to expand sanctions, it's not really going to have much impact on Moscow because they've already been hit by all these sanctions. But it will symbolize that U.S.-Russia relations, you know, aren't getting back on track anytime soon. I mean, that's already clear for at least the next few years. But I think this if this goes through, it kind of tells you we might be looking at decades until there's any sort of rapprochement with Russia because reversing these designations is pretty hard to do. It's very not politically popular. Um, Any president that will try to do it will come under a lot of pressure not to, obviously, by looking at the countries listed here. Cuba was actually, it was first listed in the 80s by the Reagan administration, and Obama uh, lifted the designation um, as part of his steps towards normalization with Havana. He never fully normalized relations with Cuba, so Trump came in and was able to reverse everything pretty easily. So the Trump administration, you know, they redesignated Cuba as a state sponsor of terror. It was actually one of their last like foreign policy moves. It was done in January, 2021. That was Mike Pompeo's doing. Um, And, and Biden hasn't reversed any of Trump's moves to reverse Obama's moves towards normalization with Cuba. Biden has lifted some, some very minor sanctions on Cuba, but nothing significant, nothing close to taking real steps to normalize. And, you know, Cuba is really the best example that I always cite of how U.S. sanctions just don't do what they say they're going to do. They don't achieve the stated goal, which is to change the government or make the government do something. Because you look at Cuba, it's the same government that's been there since the 60s, since we've had this embargo on them, and only the people have suffered from the sanctions. And that's just the case in all these countries that come under these economic blockades by the U.S. Um, 
So the designation could potentially expand sanctions on other countries for doing business with Russia, but already as it is, um, the U.S. doesn't have much power to like enforce sanctions on the countries that are trading with them in Asia. They try to do it with Iran, but because um, a lot of Iranian oil is sold to East Asia, you know, you see them sanction these Asian companies, but I, I don't think that it really has much impact. They can get around U.S. sanctions pretty easily. Um, but Senators Lindsey Graham and Richard Blumenthal, they've been pushing for this designation. They introduced a resolution in the House that would that would call on Blinken to do it. I don't think it would enact, enact the designation. That would take another piece of legislation. Um, but they met with uh, Zelensky about the idea when they visited Kiev earlier this month. And it was pretty amazing because while they were there saying Russia, you know, sponsoring all this terrorism, Blumenthal, he said that he hopes to see a hand-to-hand insurgency in areas of Russian-occupied Ukraine. So he's calling for this insurgency. Graham expressed support for it, too, while pushing for this designation. And I mean, you just think about what a joke this designation is because of all the groups that the U.S. backs and supports and all the wars and and attacks that the U.S. has been, been behind around the world. Um the next one we have here, this is from Responsible Statecraft, and it's it cites some experts who basically explain that the U.S. will not gain anything by declaring Russia a terrorist state. Um, the next one here, uh, Turkey says that Russia and Ukraine will sign a grain deal on Friday. So they've been in talks on uh, working out an agreement to facilitate the export of Ukrainian grain. So Turkey said that officials from Ukraine... Russia and the UN will meet in Istanbul and sign a deal. And Turkey first announced this deal last week after hosting talks between the warring sides and the UN. Under the agreement, Ukrainian vessels would guide ships in and out of Ukraine's heavily mined ports, and Russia would agree not to attack the area while shipments were moving. Um, Turkey's role would be to inspect ships leaving Ukrainian ports for smuggled arms, and Istanbul would have this, the support of the UN for the mission. So we've just been hearing all about, you know, Russia's blockade of, of Ukraine's Black Sea ports is preventing Ukrainian ships from, from leaving. Um, and then, you know, Russia's side of the story is that Ukraine's ports are heavily mined. So that's why the ships can't leave, which is true. But, you know, Russia did start the war and is the re- that's why the mines were put there so they're not blameless but it is you know Ukraine mined the port and these ships couldn't leave and they wouldn't let ships leave um they want secu- they wanted security guarantees f- from Russia that they wouldn't uh attack while they kind of cleared the way for these mines um so we'll see how this deal goes uh, it's tough to say exactly you know if everybody's going to cooperate But it's interesting because Turkey has really emerged as a broker between Russia and Ukraine and has been calling for a negotiated solution to end the war, unlike the U.S. and other NATO members who have shown little interest in diplomacy. Now, despite the U.S. had no role in brokering this deal, and this is what happens when you stand, you know, on one side and abandon diplomacy, you you know, these deals are going to be signed without you. But despite having nothing to do with the deal, not accomplishing anything in the avenue of diplomacy when it comes to this war and just fueling it by shipping weapons into the country, 
you know, the U.S. still has a lot to say about this deal. Uh, State Department spokesman Ned Price said that the U.S. will will hold Russia accountable to see that the deal is implemented. So I don't know how they're going to do that, considering they're not involved in it at all. Um, so the next one, this is more sanctions backfiring on the West. Uh, IEA chief, the International Energy Agency, it's, that's a Paris-based organization, he said on Thursday that Europe must reduce its natural gas consumption by 20% to make it through the winter. And this is as the EU is preparing for Russia to cut off its gas supply. So they're already receiving limited gas from Russia. Um, the Nord Stream 1 pipeline that runs from Russia to Germany uh, was put back online today. It was taken out of operation for about 10 days, I think, for maintenance. But it's still running at 60% less capacity than normal. Russia said it had to reduce it by that amount because there was a turbine in Canada being repaired and sanctions were preventing it from coming back to Europe. So you that's you see how these sanctions are just totally backfiring on Europe. Um, but there's still a chance that Russia will cut off the EU completely. They think it's going to happen. They're preparing for it. And, you know, it's a very clear reaction to these sanctions. The EU has basically declared an economic war against Russia funded a proxy war against Russia on its border. And then they turn around and they act surprised and they accuse Russia of using gas as blackmail. Um, I just don't get how they can be surprised that there's consequences for taking such a hawkish, stanch, hawkish, hawkish stance against one of your biggest energy suppliers. Um, I always was would say that the gas trade between Europe and Russia, the energy trade, you know, that's why there's not going to be a war in, in Eastern Europe. Um, but now as this is getting all cut off, um, you know, it's not good and it's really not good for Europe and Europeans. Um, so, I mean, 20%, I mean, that's huge. So his warning, the head of the IEA came after the EU unveiled the plan on Wednesday, uh, to, to reduce gas consumption by 15% to prepare for the coming winter. But some members have already rejected this Plan. Spain and Portugal said that they don't agree to the 15% cut because their energy infrastructure is not linked to the rest of Europe and they use much less Russian gas than other EU members. So they don't want to have to make their people um, have to you know, deal with this and not be able to heed their homes because the rest of Europe is, is uh, you know, gas doesn't have as much gas. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how, how this plays out. Um, but yeah, you see Europe is dealing with soaring inflation. The euro is dro is dropping. Um, things really aren't looking good. And I mentioned earlier this week that the IMF has warned that if the EU loses its Russian gas supply, it will cause deep recessions in several countries in Europe. Europe as a whole will take a hit. In order to minimize the impact, they have to cooperate to share alternative supplies. So that's part of this plan to reduce by 15%. And they want countries like Spain and Portugal that aren't as reliant on Russia to also ration gas and share more of their gas with the rest of Europe. But that plan doesn't seem too favorable um, to those countries. Okay, so the next one. Belarus's Lukashenko says Ukraine war must end to avoid nuclear abyss. So this is a you know, ominous war warning from the Belarusian president, uh, Alexander Lukashenko, he said, quote, we must stop, reach an agreement, end this mess, 
operation and war in Ukraine. Let's stop and then we will figure out how to go on living. There's no need to go further. Further lies the abyss of nuclear war. There's no need to go there. And quote. So Lukashenko, it's interesting because he did let Putin use Belarus's territory to for the first for the initial part of the invasion. Um, but he hasn't, you know, Belarus hasn't been directly involved in the fighting. There's been all these warnings in Western media about how Belarus is going to enter the fight, but we haven't seen that happen. And we've seen Lukashenko say before that the war's kind of dragging on too long. You know, he still blames the West for starting it and everything. But I mean, his warning, the reason why I wanted to highlight this is because this is what we're de- we're, we're risking here by all this Western intervention, you know, pouring weapons, pouring billions of dollars worth of weapons into Ukraine. And Russian officials, they've ruled out using nuclear weapons in Ukraine unless they say that they would use only use nuclear weapons if there was an existential threat to Russia. That's their policy. Um, but we've seen Dmitry Medvedev. He's the deputy on the Russian Security Council. He's a former Russian president. We've seen him say, you know, warn the West, if you keep going, you know, we're all going to, it's going to end humanity because there's going to be a nuclear war. So that's what the West is risking. And we never see any of Western leaders, any American politicians, leaders, very few, speak out and say that that's what we're risking. So I think it's important to highlight when we see these comments from from Lukashenko, um, just because it's so, uh, it seems like nobody's taking this in, into as a factor that that this could lead to a war between the U.S. and Russia, which everybody believes would quickly turn into a nuclear war. It seems like we've forgotten that. Many people have forgotten that. Um, but any anyway, another thing that's interesting about Lukashenko is that. He's very close to Putin now, but he wasn't as close to Putin um, a few years ago. But in August 2020, there was an election in Belarus and he won and the U.S. and the EU rejected the results and started sanctioning, imposing all these sanctions on Belarus and throwing support behind uh, an opposition leader who was exiled from the country or who fled the country. And then that gave him really no choice but to grow closer to Putin, and then Russia used Belarus's territory to invade Ukraine. So you just see how sanctions and pressure from the West, it can backfire. It, it always seems to backfire. Um, okay, so the next one here. So we got another Nancy Pelosi story for you. <laughs> I'm sure you're all excited about that. But so this is about the Taiwan trip again that, that we've been talking about. Um, so there were reports earlier this week that said Pelosi was going to Taiwan in August. China responded, gave some stern warnings that they would respond. And then we saw President Biden. He was asked if it was a good idea that she go. And he said that the military doesn't think it's a good idea. And that's all he said. It was a quick little comments to the press after he got off Air Force One. Pelosi was asked about that on Thursday. And she said that she hasn't heard any warnings from the president. And she de- she declined to detail her plan, so she didn't confirm that she was going to Taiwan. But the way she handled it, it made it sound like, yeah, I'm going to go, but I'm not going to tell you. And I didn't hear a warning from the president. So it's just funny because Biden, what he said, he probably wasn't really supposed to say that the military probably assessed that the risk of sending Pelosi there, the, the Speaker of the House, 
a very high level official in the American government, sending her to Taiwan, sending a signal to China that the American government doesn't really play by the one China policy, very provocative to China. Um, so the military probably assessed that the risk is not worth whatever reward, you know, whatever Pelosi would accomplish on the trip. But that doesn't mean that they're not going to do it because this is what it is now, you know, stoking tensions with one nuclear power on this side of the world and then with another on the other side of the world. So this is their MO is to um, really just get in, just um, push China on this issue. They just keep pushing and pushing it. There's been more congressional delegations. And this really angers China. You know, the U.S. severed diplomatic relations with Taiwan in 1979 to normalize with Beijing. And now we see them in the last few years. Really, it looks like um, shifting away from the one China policy. Now there's just, there are hawks, like ultra, ultra hawks, like Tom, the Tom Cottons of the world that want to change the one China policy and recognize Taiwan as an independent country. That's still a pretty fringe thought in Washington. If the U.S. does that, that would probably guarantee war. Uh, that would probably make China maybe not invade Taiwan, but maybe attack one of their other islands. I mean, that would China would have to react from their point of view. Um so as the years go on, I think we're going to see more and more support for that. It seems like it's the direction we're going. And China keeps warning it's a red line. It's a very familiar situation with Ukraine. Russia always warned Ukraine joining NATO was a red line, but nobody listened. And here, you know, here we are today. Um, so this next one, this is from Jason Ditz. Iran demands Turkey withdraw military after resort strike. So... Uh, excuse me, did I say Iran demands? I meant Iraq demands. So there was an attack on a resort in northern Iraq in the Kurdish region that killed now the death holes up to nine civilians. It was a Turkish artillery strike. For their part, Turkey denies it and blames it on the PKK, the Kurdish militant group. Um, but now Iraq is calling for Turkey to withdraw from its uh, territory in the north there. Turkey has launched some incursions recently uh, against the Kurds in the north. Um, so things are heating up there. And it's interesting because it seems like Erdogan's preparing for another little invasion uh, in northeast Syria. And he also he accused the U.S. of training Kurds to commit terrorist attacks against Turkey. Um, the U.S. supports the SDF in northeast Syria, which is part of the Y. PG, which is, there's all these different names and initials, um, but the PKK is the one that Turkey um, is really, you know, trying to fight against. And they are affiliates of the PKK, the, the Kurds that the U.S. backs in northeast Syria. On paper, the U.S. is backing them to fight ISIS, but really, you know, there's about a thousand troops in eastern Syria where the Kurdish forces are. And a the that presence is more about keeping that area of Syria out of the hands of Damascus, out of the hands of the government of Bashar al-Assad. Um, the U.S. occupies eastern Syria, maintains crippling, really harsh sanctions on Syria that specifically are meant to prevent the country from rebuilding after 10 years of brutal war. They target the construction and energy sectors. They don't want them to rebuild 
unless there's regime change. That's the official U.S. policy. And we've seen Blinken actually say this, that the goal of U.S. sanctions is to prevent serious reconstruction. And I'm not making this up. It sounds like I'm making it up, but this is the policy. And the people of Syria are suffering because of it. They didn't suffer enough from the proxy war that they had to face from all the uh, extremists and terrorists that the U.S. and its Gulf allies funded there. So speaking of Syria, the U.S. also you know, tacitly endorses Israel's bombing campaign in Syria. Israel bombs Syria pretty frequently. I would say it's about a weekly rate. Some weeks we don't see strikes, but then other weeks we see two or three. So they bombed Syria overnight Thursday into Friday. This is also from Jason Ditz. And it killed three Syrian soldiers and wounded seven others. So Israel does these strikes. They say they're targeting Iranian targets in Syria, but they generally lately they've been mostly killing Syrian soldiers. Sometimes they target Iraq's Shia militias. Um, but you know, they really they bomb Syria all the time, and you really don't see much coverage of it in the mainstream media. You know, of course, there's always write-ups of it in Reuters and AFP and stuff, but it doesn't get much further than that. Um recently it seemed like Israel was stepping up its air campaign. They took out the Damascus International Airport. It was it was out of operation for a few days or maybe a week or more than that. Um, so, yeah, they do also to bomb civilian infrastructure in Syria. And the U.S. Uh, does really back it. I mean, they don't outright say that they support Israel's airstrikes. There was a report recently in the Wall Street Journal that said the U.S. approved a lot of Israeli airstrikes that went through eastern Syria near the Al-Tamf base. That's a base that the U.S. has in eastern Syria near, near the border of Iraq and Jordan. And when Israel flies an airstrike from there, when they go that direction, they have to clear it with the U.S. and the U.S. approves it. So the U.S. Um, cooperates with, with Israel on its airstrikes. And another thing, Brett McGurk, who is the top Middle East official on Biden's National Security Council, he uh, he's kind of famous for resigning in, I think it was 2019 when Trump said he was going to pull out of Syria. Trump said he was going to pull out of Syria twice and didn't do it. I think it was the first time. And McGurk was his envoy to the U.S.-led anti-ISIS coalition in Syria and Iraq. And McGurk resigned because Trump said he was going to pull out. And when he resigned, he wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post outlining what the U.S. policy in Syria should be. And he said the U.S. should keep keep an occupation force in eastern Syria. And he I, I don't know. I don't think he said it in the article, but we, we heard Trump say it when he decided to stay in Syria. He said that they're going to stay there to keep the oil. Um, so that's where most of the country's oil resources are. That's where a lot of their agricultural and wheat resources are. So they're keeping that out of Damascus's hands and out of the hands of the Syrian people. Um, and they also, he also said that, um, the sanctions, you keep the sanctions on Syria, keep the occupation and support Israel's airstrikes in Syria. So it is really, even though they don't say it out loud, it's us policy to support those airstrikes as part of the campaign against, uh, the Syrian government and the Syrian people. Um, but with that, uh, so this is the last show for the week. This is Friday's show. I will be back uh, Sunday night, and I hope everybody liked it. Um, this was the first week. 
it'll get better as we go along. I'll get better at doing this, but I'm excited about it. It seems like a lot of people like it. And I just want to thank everybody. And um, I will see you after the weekend and I'll catch everybody 